This is a word fitly spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, Reverend David Appled. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, guys. Good to be back on with you. Glad to have you back. Zelwyn, has winter hit? Oh, yeah. Winter has definitely hit. The snow isn't sticking around, but it's snowed at least three or four times since the last time we recorded. So, yeah, it's definitely getting cold up here. Nicely done. It's like a balmy 80 down in Paducah, right, David? No, it's hotter than that. We had a church picnic <laughs> on Sunday after after service, and that uh, we were all, the, the people who were planning it were anticipating a cooler fall weather, but it was, I think it was 88, almost, it was pushing 90, but there was at least a little bit of a warm breeze blowing around. <laughs> well, there you go. It's just raining here, you know, for like 40 days and 40 nights. I'm about to gather two of every type of animal in Iowa and, you know, just, just to be safe. But... Mostly pigs, but yes. <laughs> right. Hey, you know. Un- They're clean. unclean, but I, maybe <laughs> we gotta get, which is good because I got to get seven of the, of the clean ones. So. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, that's what we're dealing with up here. You know, everybody's just waiting for things to dry out so they can get the crops harvested and, you know, have a little bit of peace in their lives and yep. less, less worry. So we've gathered here tonight to talk about an interesting subject. We're going to delve back into the Old Testament prophets. Now, when we talk about prophets and prophecy, we tend to think of the sermons they delivered or the admonitions they delivered, bringing the word of God to the people. And we do think of prophets as obedient. But oftentimes we think of obedience simply as they're holy men. They are doing their best to obey God's law, God's commands as we understand them, the same ones that apply to us, you know, as far as the moral law goes. Also in the Old Testament, they're going to be held to the mo- some other laws, quite a few other laws, depending upon which covenant they're living in. Most of them are going to be in the Mosaic Covenant, right? Correct. We come to the subject of tonight, though. We understand the prophet's preaching. And we understand their general obedience to the law, to the Mosaic law. But what about when God comes and tells them to do these seemingly bizarre actions? What do we do with this? There's a lot of imagery within the prophets that at first glance don't make a lot of sense. The commands sometimes seem arbitrary. Is there a lesson for us in these examples? That's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Gentlemen, any thoughts before we before we go in? You know, what what would this look like? With, before we jump into Hosea and Isaiah and the others, what's one of the first really shocking commands that God gives one of his people in the Bible? Think about Abraham. Yeah, right. You encounter this even before of what we typically think of as the the time of the prophets. Abraham being commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac is probably the one that most people are gonna you know, immediately say, well, this was a time, here was a very odd command, to say the least, right? That God would test Abraham this way is certainly shocking. But even as you go along, you know, you do, and and what we're going to talk about tonight are these, the prophets much later, I don't know how long exactly, I don't have the timeline in front of me, but you get these particular men in their particular callings who yeah, are commanded to do some rather strange things. And as you're reading 
scriptures, it can be that that shock comes out and it can sort of be off-putting of like, well, where did this come from? Why is this happening? And so we hope at least a little bit tonight to kind of clarify some of these seemingly strange things and see how they, they fit in actually perfectly to the prophetic purpose of men like Hosea and Isaiah. And I think it's also worth talking about because you sometimes hear unbelievers who are trying to discredit the Bible latch on to these kinds of commands and say, see, see, why would God tell people to do this? You know, why would God tell people to uh, tell Abraham to sacrifice his own son? Why would, you know, he command any number of things? And so talking about these things can also have an apologetic purpose so that we know the reason why they are being commanded. And it's not just for arbitrary reasons. God is not just saying, hey, I feel like you telling you to do this today, so you better listen. But all these things have a, a very real purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nothing is put in the Bible by accident, and God certainly doesn't command things just to entertain himself. Nothing is arbitrary, even if it appears to be in our sinful inclination. You know, the Old Testament is neglected by many pockets of Christendom and in many parts of Christendom, right? A lot of times people don't like to read the Old Testament, and there's a number of reasons. Some mistakenly think that it somehow is a lesser word of God now that the New Testament is here. Andy Stanley. (laughs) Cough, right? Cough, cough. You know, so, hey, we don't stand for that, so it must not be that important. You know, others might say, well, I don't like reading genealogies. And yet some sincere Christians come to these things like Hosea, parts of Ezekiel, you know, things in the, in the story of, you know, even, even Elijah and certainly Jeremiah and say, I, I don't know what's going on here. And so they close the book up and say, okay, I'm just going to go back to uh, the Gospel of John or First John and, and stick with it. Now, there's nothing necessarily bad with that, and I don't, my intention is not to shame you for that. But what we want to do here with this episode is to kind of shed a little bit of light on this. Now, we, we don't have time to go through every example in Scripture and say definitively, this is what this means, this is what this commandment signifies or whatever. But to just get the general point across that when God commands something, it is always for his good, for his glory, and ultimately for your good. And I think by the end of this hour, we will discover that the stories of the Old Testament prophets are certainly, in some sense, applicable to the Christian today. There is a lesson to be learned about our Christian life, walk, and faith. And we're going to talk about the ultimate example of this a little later on. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Yeah. It's always Jesus. Right, it's always. You know, <laughs> oftentimes the Sunday school answer is the correct one. <laughs> so, all that being said, guys, any, any other comments before we jump into some texts here? Well, I think before we do, it, it's helpful at least to kind of, maybe if I can outline it this way for us here. The, the main purpose of the prophet, like you said, Willie, is to be the mouthpiece of the Lord right to speak God when God calls Jeremiah here's the prime example I think of what a prophet is supposed to be he in the call of Jeremiah he sees the Lord's hand come out and touch his mouth and God says I see I have put my words in your mouth okay so it's very much a verbal office right that's that should be standard everybody should understand that that the the prophet is a preacher and that's what he's supposed to do. But what we're going to be looking at tonight is what happens when the the prophet's life 
gets mingled into that prophetic task, to that preaching task, because we've mentioned Hosea. Hosea's marriage, it becomes part of his prophecy, right? And Isaiah's, uh, you get Isaiah's children. Some of our listeners may be already aware of the name. Isaiah is told to name his children particular names that fit in with his prophecy. But then there's some other ones that are maybe even more strange in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But again, they all fit into the prophecy and the calling of the prophet. Does that make sense? So you got the the preaching of the word, and then here is also the living out of that prophecy. Well, let's take it down into particulars then. I mean, we've been kind of talking about Hosea. How do we want to summarize what Hosea is commanded to do? I think the best way is just say it like it says in the Bible, He, the Lord commands him to take a wife of <laughs> whoredom. At least that's the way the ESV says it. So he's supposed to marry a prostitute or at least a, a woman who is known to be unfaithful. With the most beautiful name in the Bible. Right. <laughs> right. Gomer. <laughs> so he, he takes Gomer to be his wife. And then the Lord says, now you need to have, you need to have children with her. So they have three kids. The Lord commands him what to name the children. There's no like, you know, here's a list you might want to consult and you can choose whichever one kind of suits your fancy and maybe pick a family name, Hosea. No, God tells him exactly what to name the kids. And they're these kind of terrible names. Jezreel, I suppose, is the best one. But then the next one is called No Mercy. And then the last one is called No People. (laughs) You know, that's the English translation. And so, I mean... I, I encounter this from time to time where you, you hear people whose kids have names that, that you would never pick, right? But they're, they're usually not derogatory. Hosea is commanded to name his children what, by pretty much all accounts, are derogatory names. Right. It's a prophecy of the fall of Israel, essentially. Right. Or, or God separating from Israel. And that's a that's a tough burden to bear for a kid, you know. Nobody ever talks about the kid. Pretty pretty tough. Uh, they're they're fine though. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like a boy named Sue. It's yeah, like there you go. Version of right. That. right. <laughs> well, now that's going through my head. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So so now you have this again. This is a stream, a seemingly strange thing. I mean, most of us would not pick a prostitute. Uh, for a wife. I mean, unless you've watched Pretty Woman over and over, you wore out that VHS tape and uh, you were really convinced <laughs> and convicted by it. Julia Roberts. <laughs> right. Is my trust wife. Me guys, trust me, guys. It's, it's not like that in real not life. Not a good idea. Right. It's not, a, don't, you know. Anyway, boom, called to do that. Okay, God. And he is obedient to that call. Okay, now you're going to have kids and I'm going to give you these specific names and they're not going to be good names. And I'm sorry. And even more than that, when Gomer herself becomes unfaithful, surprise, surprise, Hosea is told to take her back. Yes. Yes. And I think that's also something we have to take into consideration here. So that he's not actually, I mean, that would be what? Is that Hosea 3? Yeah, chapter 3, right? Love by another man is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. This is verse 1. And so she comes back and becomes his wife again. I mean, so it becomes even weirder. But what is the purpose of all of this weirdness in Hosea? What is he what is God trying to say? Yeah, so the and this is where we can tie it in with the 
preaching task of the prophet, there's always an interpretive word alongside these signs, right? So God doesn't just command Hosea, hey, I'm not going to tell you why to do this. And there's no explanation that, that you're to give to people. I just want you to marry a prostitute because, you know, that's just the thing to do for you, Hosea. It's because the the marriage of the prophet and this wife of whoredom is a depiction of what's happening between God and Israel, right? So Israel is uh, represented by Gomer and Hosea represents the Lord in this, in the picture there in the marriage. And that becomes a living, moving, breathing prophecy, preaching of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. Yeah, God's continual forgiveness in the face of their iniquities and infidelities. Boy, what a hard thing that must have been for Hosea, though, to obey the Lord in this way. I mean, I think we have to really seriously wrestle with the fact that many of these commandments are difficult. And I think when we get into some of the other examples, especially in the major prophets, they're being told to do things that seem, well, I mean, use Abraham as an example, almost repugnant. Yeah. Yeah. It's So it's easy. You're right, Zoe. And it's easy to, to sort of say, you know, the shock, the initial shock. Wow, that's crazy. And then <laughs> you just you just don't think about it anymore. But think of the suffering that Hosea goes through. Uh, you mentioned his kids, but Hosea too, to, to marry a woman who he knows is going to be unfaithful. I mean, he knows by all practical purposes, he knows she's going to be unfaithful to him. And then she is, and God tells him, now go, and he has to actually buy her back. I don't know exactly why he has to buy her, but I assume that it's the price of, I don't think it's the bride price, right? I think it's like he has to pay like any other person would have had to pay for to get her back. And so he his, his own personal suffering, again, represents the Lord's, I guess, I guess it, it be, he becomes a living, moving, breathing depiction of the long suffering, the patience of the Lord, but it's a patience that continues to bear the insult of his people. Because that comes out very clearly in the, the way that Hosea actually prophesies then. All right, good. Any any other observations about Hosea before we move on? So folks, you're starting to see this picture here then. Now these are not merely stories or allegories that are simply fictions, you know, crafted to tell this story. God actually puts his prophet through this as an example and as a way to teach Israel and to bring her back to repentance or through repentance. So, you know, we're talking about real people here, a real God, your God, who is calling his people to be obedient to him and to trust that his ways are better than their ways, even when it seems totally contrary to our fallen selves. You're right. It it has that purpose for for the audience of Hosea, but but also too just for Hosea himself, in order to speak what he the words he has to speak come out of you know certainly they're given to him by the Lord, of course, right? There he's inspired by the Spirit, but he's also speaking out of in a, in a sense he's speaking out of his own experience with Gomer, right? He knows what it's like to have an unfaithful wife, and so when he preaches about the unfaithfulness of Israel, he's he's speaking, I, I guess, he's speaking from the fullness of his own heart, right? 
Yeah, and we don't we don't want to think that God commanding Hosea to do these things or God commanding Abraham or whatever example we might have means that somehow God's law, I don't know how to put this, it doesn't become an opportunity for license on our part, right? It's not something that God is saying, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm just telling you to do something contrary to my own word. No, it is still the Lord's mission to speak this prophetic word and to call us to repentance through some rather drastic signs. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I'm just emphasizing that because if we're saying like a, a wife of whoredom, we don't want to draw the conclusion then that it doesn't matter like what we do in our own marriages or something like that. Well, it isn't that Hosea is committing any iniquity here. God is not commanding him to go against his um, established law. Right. The, the sin is on Gomer's part. Right. You know, would Hosea, in any other situation, would Hosea have been right to say, seek, you know, divorce or retribution in some way? By the letter of the law, yes. Here, he has a specific command from the Lord to forgive. Obviously, I mean, that's different than the general Christian admonition to forgive. So, you know, I'm just saying we want to be a little little bit careful here. It's It's more of it isn't as if God is commanding something sinful. God is commanding something that seems counterintuitive or that perplexes us because it's not the way things would normally go. Right. And the only reason I'm emphasizing what I'm saying is because it might seem like it's sin. Sure. To us. And we don't want to interpret it as sin. Yeah. Or at least, and at the very least, it might seem foolish or like a, you know, like a, like a bad commandment insofar as it's not wise. Right. But the wisdom of God is greater than the... There it is. I teed it up for you. I was hoping we... <laughs> and, okay, here, here's another great New Testament passage. The world was not worthy of the prophets, right? This is Hebrews 11. The example of Hosea and his obedience to this command, like we're talking about the suffering that he surely went through in his marriage, is a very, you know, it's it's a super abundant kind of obedience that... That should be an, a great example and encouragement for us. But you're right, Zelwyn, this isn't the kind of thing you just take on yourself. This is something that, that God calls him to specifically, and then that God em- enables him to do. That's, that's a much better way of putting it, yes. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast, available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills, Owen Heidi, David Apple talking prophets, obedience, all kinds of good stuff. So we just went over Hosea, 
the example laid down there, some of the specific commands God gave him. Let's take a look now at some of these examples in the major prophets, which many of you are probably familiar with. So guys, let's start with Isaiah. Anything odd that kind of stands out about that book? I think there's there's two things we want to point out in Isaiah. First, similar to Hosea, his children, two of his sons, are become part of his prophecy because of their names. So in chapter 7, his oldest son, I, I think it's his oldest son, goes along with him at the very beginning of chapter 7, and his oldest son's name is Shir Jashub, which means a remnant will return. He takes his son along with him, and the, the son becomes like a sign. It's actually a comforting prophecy. Most of these that we're going to, and we can talk about this later, most of these are signs of judgment. But this one anyways, his first son is a sign of comfort, that there will be a remnant who returns. And then in, in chapter 8, you get a stranger name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz is the name that the Lord gives to Isaiah's son, and then Isaiah has to give it to him too. And that is that becomes a prophecy of the coming invasion of Assyria. What does that name mean, David? It means, well, there's some, I guess, some difficulty in bringing it into English, but it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. But the idea is the king of Assyria is rushing in to take away the spoil of Israel. So this is God bringing about a sign without any, the, the volition of Isaiah doesn't matter. God brings about these children as he does all children. God opens and closes the womb. But Isaiah recognizes these children specifically as prophetic signs, and he names them accordingly. Yeah, and then it, the the verse that comes in later, Isaiah, he's speaking, seems like he's, you know, he's not, it's not a thus saith the Lord kind of a passage, although certainly inspired. He he says, behold, I and the children the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. So he, his own life becomes a sign, but also his his children, their names anyways. We don't, I don't know what becomes of his kids. I assume they're just kind of faithful sons of Isaiah, but they don't, they don't function in the rest of the prophecy other than just their name, their names do. And what else does Isaiah do that's kind of strange, David? Yeah, Isaiah, in chapter 20, he is commanded to take off all his clothes and to walk around naked for about three years. <laughs> See, once again, another example of things that you shouldn't do. Yeah. You shouldn't, you know, you should follow the prophet's general example, not always the specific example. This is not a commandment for you. It's not normative. Right. So so some people will try to maybe soften it a little bit and say, well, it's just, he's maybe he's just taking off his outer garment, but that that becomes a untenable interpretation because the the purpose of that sign is it's a it's actually a prophecy against Egypt and Cush that they in the same way that Isaiah is you know stripped of his clothing so will they be stripped i think it's again by the king of Assyria and they're going to be led away naked into captivity so it's a, a sign of you know sh obviously shame and and coming judgment yeah, I think verse 4 in chapter 20 kind of puts that whole debate to rest because it says, with buttocks uncovered. So this is Isaiah as naked as the day he was born. Yeah, the classic, like, trying to explain away a text instead of just reading a couple verses down. Yes. <laughs> and and so think about, I mean, Isaiah, think, think about the, he's, this is how he's 
it seems to be he's living like this every day. It's not, God doesn't say like, you know, this is just a seasonal thing. You know, you can put your clothes on when the sun goes down, but then when the sun comes up, you know, it's not like fasting rules like, <laughs> like, like that. It's just, you just, you go around, you go about naked and people are going to obviously mock him and ridicule him. But that is part of, of the, sh- I guess that maybe that's part of the, the prophecy. It's supposed to shock people. It's supposed to get attention and make them say, why is he doing this? Yeah, because once they ask the question, why is he doing this, then he can turn around and say, as I am, so you will be. But do we have any other weird things in Isaiah, David, or do we do we want to go on to some of the other prophets? Those are the only ones that, that I, you know, as I was kind of putting this together, those are the ones that, that I found. There may be some more, and maybe if, if people know of some other ones, it <laughs> certainly wouldn't rule out anything else in Isaiah. But that that's all for Isaiah now. All right, let's take a look at Jeremiah. Yeah, so Jeremiah, again, you get some very graphic things here. First one is in chapter 13 of Jeremiah. He's commanded to go and purchase a loincloth. Okay, fair enough. And then he's supposed to wear it for a time. And then God tells him to go out into a field and bury it and kind of go away and come back. And when he comes back and un he he digs it back up and it's completely soiled and useless. And so I don't know if he goes around wearing it or if that's, he just shows it to people. I forget exactly how it, how it goes. Oh, you mean afterwards? Yeah, afterwards. Cause you know, for it to be a sign, I would expect him to have to show it to other people. Well, I think, I think it's worth pointing out here that it's a linen loincloth. In other words, he's wearing linen underwear, and he's also commanded not to dip it in water. And linen, of course, being a plant-based material, for it to not be dipped like that means it's not going to be clean to begin with, and then it's just going to rot when it's buried. But again, I mean, his, I mean, what do you want to call it? His, his special underwear here, <laughs> his, his Mormon underwear is a sign. And what is the sign for? Yeah. So, so this is great. He, then he uses this as, as sort of a, a divine object lesson. I hate that almost, that almost trivializes it, doesn't it? Because when I think of like divine, uh, like an object lesson, I think of, you know, a bad children's sermon, this, this, who knows this candy, this cotton candy is like God's love or something. Who, who knows? Anyways, <laughs> the, the loincloth is supposed to symbolize Israel who God has kept close to him, right? As if God was wearing Israel close to him, they've clung to him, to his waist, but then they have become completely soiled and useless in their sins and in their, in their apostasy and in their adultery. They're like useless underwear. <laughs> that would be an object lesson to end all object yes. lessons. Right. Right. On Sunday morning, you know what, Pastor, we we don't want you to do children's sermons anymore. <laughs> We're just going <laughs> to let this go. Yeah. Well, I I think it's maybe it's worth noting too that loins in the Old Testament are always the the symbol of of strength and of power. The the sons come forth from the loins, so that you know the the first fruits of your strength, that sort of thing. So I think you can interpret it as Israel is supposed to cling to God's strength, God's power, but they have just become soiled. So I think that's a good way to interpret it, yeah, don't you think? Absolutely. And and again, you can see here just in in how you're uh, what at first seems like a just a bizarre command actually becomes a very 
vivid, yeah, very graphic part of Isaiah's preaching. So what's another one? Okay, so let's keep going in in Jeremiah. Then you get on, so that's chapter 13. In chapters 18 and 19, you get this potter and clay stuff, which comes up again. Paul talks about the the potter and and the vessels in in Romans. But in Jeremiah, he, he goes and he watches a potter working on some clay. And, but then his, he uses, he, he goes out and purchases like a, a, a vessel, a clay vessel, and he takes it and he, in the presence of quite a few onlookers, he takes it and shatters it on the ground. And then that's a sign of what God is going, Israel is, or Judah is God's chosen vessel. But because they've become completely unfaithful, he is going to shatter them in the coming exile. So again, this is a, a very vivid object uh, lesson of sorts. Yeah, that one's, I think that one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, so, and that one, that one doesn't have the same shock value, right? It's not underwear. So sure. like, okay, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's... Well, it, I mean, it still has the kind of the strangeness because it's like, why would God care about a pot? You know, I mean, like you say, it's not shocking, but it is still kind of strange. And I think that's what we're going for. So... Yes. Well, what's another example? Okay, so then this one, this is my favorite one in Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar is is coming to power in Babylon at this time, and Nebuchadnezzar is is going to to basically enslave everyone, right? And so what God tells Jeremiah to do is to make himself some the ESV translation calls it yoke bars. But the the picture I get is like of a guy in stocks, you know, like in medieval times, kind of torture things. There, there's literally a, a squat tool, like for working out, called there a yoke go. bar. And okay. I mean, the idea it looks like you're in something like a stockade, but the idea is it impedes movement. It's heavy. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so, same same idea. That's what Jer- so Jeremiah's like perpetual leg day. And he's <laughs> he's he's a he's a crossfitter, right? But go on. He's, well, that that would be too close to to some sort of unionism or syncretism, you know. That crossfit <laughs> religion is not for me. So so he just walks around with his yoke bars on, and that is a sign then of what Neb- what God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to do to Judah. But I think the prophecy extends not just to Judah, but to the surrounding nations. What's the reference on that? That's in chapter 27. Okay. And then, I mean, it gets even better. In chapter 28, there's a a false prophet. I think his name's Hananiah. And he he comes up to Jeremiah and and he wants to have a prophecy of of peace and comfort, right? So he wants to speak peace and and good news to people. And Jeremiah is only, only, you know, he's doom and gloom. So Hananiah breaks Jeremiah's stock and says, you know, the Lord's going to set us free. And so and Jeremiah's response is to say, you've broken these wooden, this wooden yoke bar, and God is going to fix iron yoke bars on us now, and you're going to die. And then the last verse of chapter 28 is, in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. It's a great way to end a chapter, but that's significant. That detail has to be noted. Okay, why is he dying? Because of what he did. And if so that's a prophecy directly from the prophet. If it didn't come to pass, what would that say about Jeremiah? 
Well, then Jeremiah would be drawn into question. Well, he would. Have, well, he would be a false prophet, just plain and simple. Yeah, right. And that's that's the whole confrontation between those two is which of these who's who's the true prophet and who's the false prophet? Because people are going to want to believe Hananiah, right? Because he's the one who's saying, you know, this this Jeremiah stuff is all a little too intense. You know, we're not going to go into slavery. God's going to set us free. We're you know we have the temple and we are the people of the Lord. And so, you know, he's not going to judge us. And so, yeah, then Hananiah keels over. This is about that careful reading of scripture again that we go back to. It would be easy enough to read over it and go, and Jeremiah said he was going to die and and that he died and go on, you know, and just miss that significance of, it's not saying so much that Jeremiah said it was going to happen. And then the, then the guy had happened to die. It's saying what the prophet spoke came to pass because he was God's true prophet. So so sometimes we tend to think of the men God calls, and and we'll get into this a little bit more, but it's like today if you saw something like that, you would you would one, say, no, sir, I don't have any spare change, and and two, I'm not going to come to your church, right? Yeah. Right. Because these things are, are, I mean, they're absurd to us, and that's part of the reason, though. You know, again, back to God using the foolish things to confound the wise. And we just have example after example of that in the prophets. So this is a good point to we can we'll go on in a minute. But almost I, I mentioned this earlier. Almost all of these signs are are signs of judgment, and I think that that's that's important to to note for us because that's the last that that's almost harder for people to believe, right? It's harder, especially for the Jews in the Old Testament. It's harder for them to think and hear God's judgment than it is to hear smooth words, easy words, right? People will are naturally going to want to hear those. So you don't have to have such a vivid, moving depiction of it because, yeah, okay, God's going to give us peace. We like Hananiah. He's a good prophet. We'll listen to him. But this Jeremiah guy, <laughs> how do you, how do you awaken, you know, how do you, how do you stir people up to repentance? Sometimes it takes a, a bit more sternness and in these examples that we're bringing out, there is a, a very visual graphic, uh, you said absurd. There's this, there's something that is going to get attention, not just for the sake of like, huh, that's kind of cool, but it's to actually shake people, shake them to their senses. Hananiah's prophecy and his death are basically a really short version of what's happening with all of these other prophecies. So whereas the prophecy itself and the sign and the fulfillment comes with Hananiah comes to fulfillment in like three verses, some of these other signs are happening over the course of, I mean, over the course of the whole book. So yeah, so Jeremiah has a soiled loincloth, but we see that coming to fulfillment when Israel goes into exile later in the book, yeah. you know, and so it, it's just the, the gap between the sign and the fulfillment in some of these is much greater. And so it can be harder to see. But we can use this in Hananiah as an example of what God is intending to do with all of these signs. Absolutely. All right. There are a couple more examples here, but let's move on to Ezekiel. Now, another famous major prophet. Yeah, Ezekiel, the bulk of his signs come in in one chapter, but... I know Zelwyn is a big fan of Ezekiel, so we could probably we could probably do a couple of <laughs> podcasts just on Ezekiel. But in in chapter four, and you've got to read it because it's it's so 
yeah, it's so great. Our our listeners should take take the time to read Ezekiel four and five, really. But in in four, in chapter four, you get a number of these signs kind of piled together. And so, what God tells Ezekiel to do is essentially build a model city. Okay, and he so he takes a brick and he inscribes Jerusalem on the brick. And I don't know if that means like he he kind of like carves. I don't know exactly what that looks like if he just writes the name Jerusalem on there, or if he carves like the cityscape on it, but he's somehow he's got a brick and this brick is a depiction of Jerusalem. And then the sign comes in where he, he builds up a little model siege. So Ezekiel's part of his prophetic task is to be, my kids really like Legos. It, that's what, that's what comes to mind as I, as I think of this, except it's like doomsday Legos, right? Because the the sign is that the siege is coming on the city of Jerusalem, right? And the siege, of course, is Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel and Jeremiah overlap, okay? So I, I, I can pause there. That's the first part of that sign is the construction of the city and then the siege works that come up around it. Well, I think, I think it's worthwhile to just talk about all these signs together because they're all kind of doing the same thing. So what are the other ones in chapter four? Connected with this, then, he is supposed to spend some time every day. I don't think it's all day, every day, but he's supposed to spend some time every day laying on, first, God tells him to lay down on his left side. It's very specific about which side. And he has to do this for 390 days in a row. And it's one day for each year. Okay. And so a day represents a year in this prophecy and the the purpose of it he is in his body there he is laying down to symbolize the iniquity of the northern kingdom for 390 years then for 40 for 40 days after he's done that for 390 days for 40 days he lays on his right side and that is the iniquity of the southern kingdom i think that i've got that right okay and and now the, the next part of this is probably the, the most graphic part. Well, before we get to that, though, I'm going to counter signal you a little bit. I do think that he may have actually laid on his side that whole time. It all depends on how you interpret Ezekiel 4 verse 8. Place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. Ezekiel as a prophet has got enough of this general strangeness that I, I wouldn't put it past him. Eating eating the bread cooked over dung, which we'll come back to. I know you want a little bit more detail here. He shaves his head and beard, burns slash scatters the hair. He cosplays an exile out of Jerusalem. <laughs> and he has to drink while trembling and eat while, while shaking, while quaking, you know, while, while feigning tremors. <laughs> Willie's just getting down to business here, <laughs> but... Coming up, you know, hard deadlines are good for us. So, yeah, you know, the bread baking over the dung is obviously a Eucharistic reference. (laughs) (laughs) Easy now, easy now. Um, But what were you going to say, David? Well, I was going to talk about the the dung bread. So connected, well, okay, connected along with these 390 days of laying down on his side, whether he's doing that all day, every day, that would mean he's laying down for over a year, right? Right. He he's also supposed to weigh out his bread. So he's he's basically on rations, okay, is the idea. 
And that's what's symbolized. That's the sign is that as Ezekiel has, is forced to lay there and as he is forced to ration out his food and as he's forced to prepare that food over dung fire, that's what he's using for his coals. So it'll be when the siege comes upon Jerusalem. And, yeah, and initially it's even more drastic because he's first commanded to cook that bread over human dung as a symbol of yes. just how dire things were going to be. But Ezekiel protests and says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And so God gives him cow's dung instead. Yeah. I don't so, know if that makes it better, but... <laughs> Marginally <laughs> Apparently it did to Ezekiel. You know, it's like, it's like if you knew that you were being served cow's milk or like rat's milk or some Cambodian ladies, <laughs> you go with a cow. It's just, you know, I get it. I get it. I, yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so... But yeah, as as a general symbol of just how drastic things were going to be for for Israel. But go on, David. Well, and so so you think again, okay, so this is a bizarre command from God. And to come back again, the purpose of the prophet is to be God's mouthpiece. But what we're seeing here and what we're we're trying to kind of what I, what I'm hoping that our listeners can see is that this is I don't know if I want to say it's a theme, but this is a recurring thing in the prophets that their words and their their life, their whole life is caught up in their prophetic mission. And that's going to be important. I'm going to try to kind of bridge that into our next segment because of the final prophet, Jesus Christ, and how the unity that he has between his words and his life. Um, I think that that's a good bridge for us. All right. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David Appled, talking about prophets, signs, and their significance. How the obedience of the prophets, how the commandments of God are played out, and what they're what they mean. Now we've talked about the prophet obviously being a representative of Israel or another nation, and then the prophet also at times becomes a representative of God, say in actions of betrothal, redemption, judgment. So we see this now, hopefully a little more clearly, when we read the major prophets or the minor prophets. And yet all of this is fulfilled in one man, the only wise God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes these things too. And ultimately everything is pointing towards him. So in what way 
does Jesus mirror these prophets and really fulfill what they were doing? Or what ways, I guess we'd say. Yeah, I think this is where we're trying to set up this. What, what I want you to see as you go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, God putting his words in the prophet's mouth also then kind of spills over into his life. And that, of course, hopefully we, we can see that in Jesus, the word becoming flesh, right? So go to John for a John, actually all throughout, you have Jesus being the perfect image of the father, right? He only speaks what he hears the father say. So he is the the representative of the father in the way, in the, in a similar way to, or in a fulfillment of the way that the prophets take Ezekiel, for example, was a representative of God in these signs that he performed, you know, shaving his head as a sign of, you know, God judging the people of Israel. Yeah. And I think you, you do get some of these, I mean, cause one of the things that we've been focusing on is some of the, the weirdness of the old Testament I do think you'd still get some of the things we don't always fully understand, even in Jesus. I'm trying to think of some of the, the miracles that he performs, like be like spitting in mud and putting it right. on somebody's eyes. Or, I mean, help me think of some other ideas here, guys. Yeah, you have, those are, those are the ones that are kind of graphic. The, the one that comes to mind t- to me is the, when he cleanses the temple, drives out the animals, flips the tables over this, that's a, I think that that's a sign of the the judgment of the temple that's you know still to come. Another one that comes to mind is the washing of the disciples' feet on uh, Maundy Thursday. That certainly made Peter. There's a number of questions that Peter asks him, right? And so he's Peter is very caught off guard by this. You know, why are you doing this to me? Oh, not only my feet then, but my head also. And so the sign that Jesus performs leads to this this further questioning and then he's able to explain his what it what it symbolizes you know it becomes more significant as we view it through the lens of active and passive obedience and so we consider something like jesus going out and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights you know what's the ultimate significance of that is it for his own benefit does jesus somehow need to be perfected further or disciplined further well of certainly course not. not. Certainly not. You know, <laughs> so in his act of obedience for our sake. And the ultimate, you know, confusing thing, I think, for a lot of people then is Christ's passive obedience, you know, which is played out in the story of his passion, submitting to the will of God and being turned over to the hands of evil men, his own people, and being tortured and executed for the sins of the world. That, that that's the ultimate, you know, image of this, you know, and and everything else pales in comparison from Hosea's struggles to Isaiah's to you know Jeremiah's. All of these pale in comparison to the one who fulfilled everything, Jesus Christ, and His sufferings. Well, then maybe maybe the a good way to put all of this, maybe the the question that we're really struggling with is the very question of passive obedience. You know, yes. we, we sort of understand active obedience, you know, this idea that, okay, I hear something and I do it. But in reality, what we're dealing with over and over and over again is this idea of the passive obedience, of submitting to the will of God in all things. So that the prophets had to passively submit even to these strange signs, which had a greater purpose. But it seems just as strange for us, for Jesus to say, not my will, but your will be done. Maybe, right. I mean, maybe that's the, the real struggle here, don't you think? And like you say, you know, not my will, but thy will be done. There is nothing more clear than the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and I mean, there's no clearer example of this than that prayer where Jesus actually says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. He does not, yeah. that does not happen. And he submits to the will of the father. You know, what, what do we take away from that? Well, that, that is the calling of a prophet. It, you know, if you look at it in something, you know, even less severe, a prophet cannot just go and speak his own words. Right. And in many ways, as it, with the examples we've shown, a prophet doesn't get to choose his own actions either. Right. You know, yeah. we can we can pontificate about, you know, well, he's free to resist or whatever. And yeah, that's true, but that's not what a true prophet does. The The man that God has raised up, he is also equipped with the ability to obey him. Yeah, because, I mean, like Jonah, for example, in his resistance is not presented as this neutral thing. Uh, Jonah right. is obviously right. presented as a uh, as a disobedient prophet and one who is doing a bad thing up until he finally gets it and is raised, you know, from, from the whale and, and actually starts listening to the Lord. So yeah, all of it is in everything. The prophet is called to proclaim, not his words, not his dreams, not his ideas, but the word of the Lord. Yeah. And ultimately not to live according to his ways. Right. You know, that's a very interesting thing. And I know we've, we've already started to shift into sort of what we would quote unquote practical application, but I mean, consider that. And and as pastors, should we consider that too? Now, we're not prophets in the sense that we often use the word, but we are prophets in the sense that we are heralds of the word of God. Our lives are not our own. And, and really, that applies to clergy and laity too. Now, we see it in these more severe examples in the men who are actually called to be prophets. That, that's, that's true. Yeah. Does every Christian, nay, does every person, every human, are they not obligated to passively obey the will of God? Yeah, and I think, and I just want to use a, an example of this maybe to drive home the point. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 13. When a man of God comes and confronts King Jeroboam for his faithlessness and does the right thing and preaches the word of the Lord and does all these things, but then afterwards as he's going home, another prophet actually leads him astray and he he does his own will by not listening to what God had told him because God told him you shall go straight home and do nothing else, but he decides to stop. And it is in that moment that he's actually receives the judgment of death. Right. And I, I think the, the, the thing we can take from that is, is that yes, we are called to obey the Lord in all things, even when it might seem kind of strange to us, even when it might seem kind of like, oh, this isn't such a big thing. Passive obedience is obedience in everything, not just in the things that we want it to be. Yeah. Right. And yeah, that's that, that story of like the guy, you know, just going after the false prophet. You know, you automatically think of John Bunyan. I mean, I'm sure, as you all do. <laughs> well, you automatically but, think but, you of know, John Bunyan. You, you know, it's you know, the, I mean, the famous line that I saw there was a way to hell even from the gate of heaven. Right. Okay, if you, if you don't remember it from Pilgrim's Progress, you remember it from the beginning of Danzig's Mother music video. So it was there. Well, yeah. I, I'm i going to Hawthorne post and, you know, Mr. Smooth it away. There you but go. go on. You guys have left there me you. far behind. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing, though. And again, we don't want to put ourselves in the shoes of the prophets. And, and we don't, and again, we don't want to say, look, God is probably not calling you to wear a dirty diaper and carry around the dumbbells on your shoulders. Okay. Now, he hasn't told me he hasn't, but... He hasn't told me he has. And so so don't think of it that way. For us, 
passive obedience is it's a difficult thing because it does take discernment. And we don't want to be mystics about this. You know, if you're faced with with options, just, you know, use your God-given reason, you know, to choose it. You don't need to to pray, should I get 2% milk or whole milk? That that kind of thing. You don't don't be don't be that guy. But what do you do? I mean, this is a, this is a a question that Christians come up against and and in very dark times sometimes. Say cancer treatments, right? Or the house is infested with termites and we have to tear it down. And what do I do? Do I rebuild? Do I move? Uh, oddly mm-hmm. specific example. Um, <laughs> Super specific. <laughs> I'm, just, but, I'm just spitballing here. But maybe, maybe even before we get to the hard questions, maybe it's worth pointing out that passive obedience is, in essence, self-denial. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to deny ourselves, take up our cross to become like Jesus in all things... Yeah, that's not always going to be easy. I mean, I could bring Hebrews into this, which would make David happy, and say discipline is not easy at the time, but it is is meant for our good. And so even before we get to the, the hard questions of does God want me to do this or this, we have to recognize that becoming like Jesus does mean that we are being taken out of ourselves. And I think that's what makes the passive obedience so difficult for us. Yeah. And well, you, I'm glad you said Hebrews because that that actually brings to <laughs> mind the the great chapter eleven of Hebrews because this the prophets are listed off and ticked off as exactly this thing that you're talking about, right? This encouragement to look in your in your life in your suffering, you haven't in your fight against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The prophets are a, a great example of this. I don't know if you'd say extreme faithfulness, but there is, we've, we've looked at a number of these things that are seemingly bizarre commands, and yet they're called to obey them. And as you guys are, are bringing out to suffer the consequences, right? And to accept whatever comes along with obedience to the Lord. You could even, even point to martyrdom itself as an extreme example of this to be so self-denying that we become like Stephen or we become like any of the other saints who gave their lives as a witness to the truth. That's obviously not something that's going to happen, you know, out of nature or out of our own sinful selves, but because we are so completely becoming like Christ that we even become like him in his death. You know, that doesn't mean then that if your life is going good, that somehow God is absent. You know, that as if God isn't blessing you with these things. There's the other side of that. Passive obedience does not mean that you're always going to go, be going through some tragedy. But passive obedience often means for the Christian that you are not comfortable where you are, that just by living out your vocation faithfully, it will be difficult depending on where you live. You know, it might not be martyrdom, but you might lose your job. You might lose friends. You might lose your parents, your brother, your family. We just don't know. We are simply called to live as children of God under his authority and in fidelity to him and come what may. Yeah. Because we don't know what's... No, I think, and that that kind of brings us back to a a little bit to where we started with, you know, these, the the calling of the prophet is, is not universal, right? So the command to take a wife, uh, take a prostitute for a wife is not the command that's been given to any of us. 
the command to go naked for three years. Definitely not given to us. But what is the same for for everyone is the call to obedience, right? And to to say, okay, what is the will of what is the will of the Lord for me here in my in my time and place, and to to be faithful in it, and to trust that yeah. that that's going to be actually what's best for me. Yeah, and, and our crosses aren't the same. Yeah, cr- crosses are custom made. That's for sure. <laughs> so that our the exact details of my passive obedience is not going to look exactly the same as Willie's or as David's or like any other Christian. Or active obedience, really. Or active obedience, because the struggles that I go through are not the same. The vocations I've been called to are not the same. I mean, God calls me to a specific place in a specific time in his good providence. And because of that, becoming like Christ means that I will eventually, we all have the same goal. That is Jesus, but the the crosses he uses to get us there are, are going to be sure. tailor made. Yeah, and you know this is that thing we go through, like real tentatio, you know, real like tension, you know, that 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 struggle, you know, in the Christian life and difficulties we have is not found in say hearing a sermon feeling bad than hearing the gospel and feeling good. It's actually found in living out your life. If you want to talk about law and gospel, talk about the Christian life lived. More than more than homiletics. Okay, yeah, this is th- that's actually a great place to go in our last little bit, Willie, because I think that that's the way to to apply these the sign acts or whatever you want to call them these these very graphic things from the prophets of old. You, you're not going to just be able to lift that out of scripture and say, okay, this applies to my life now because I need to do what they did. But the the witness and the and the Christian life that goes along with our words, right? Our words and our bodies have to be in, in harmony, in unison, or the witness is something's off, right? It it doesn't line up and, and people will see that as teachers in the church, people look at your words, they listen to your words, certainly, but, but they're, they watch your life too. And this, I'm not trying to, to go off into, some idea of, you know, being the perfect Christian teacher, but the importance of the Christian life, the importance of living out the word and obedience to the word is, I think, something that that we've tried to bring out in a number of our podcasts. And and I think it's fitting here with with these signs from the Old Testament prophets to touch on that. And what we're trying to do with all of this is to make, is to show you that the faith is living and active, you know, as the word of God is living and active. That's what creates faith within you. See, we, we believe that. We believe in the authority and the power of the word of God. And now, and, and some people might be listening and say, well, that sounds, sounds a little like a fundamentalist there, you know? And we're not going to use the buzzwords and we're not going to use the cool pop language unless we're making fun of it because it doesn't do you any good. What does you good? The actual teaching of the scriptures. And this is what the scripture teaches, that God justifies you, not by works, but by faith. But part of that is, part of your salvation, so there's that justification. You are made pure, clean, and holy. But the whole package deal of salvation is, he picks you up out of this sinful world, and he makes you into something new. And we believe that that new man is a reality. And you're not two men, okay? You're one person made new who struggles with the vestiges of being born into sin. 
Okay, but God has called you out of it. And when God calls you, he actually completes that work within you and equips you for that work. That's what the gospel is in that large sense. That is God calling you out and God making you whole. That's the promise. The promise isn't simply that that you know he's going to make you feel better or he's going to he's going to calm you down when you're excited or say tender things to you when you hurt inside. There is some truth to that. But the real actual reality is is that God has made you part of the church so that he might make you what you are always intended to be, his perfect creation, part of his bride the church forever and ever. That is the essence of the gospel. You don't want to wallow in your sins. You don't want to glory in your sin. You want to say, I don't want to be a part of that because that grieves my God, my Father. That grieves Jesus Christ, my brother, God the Son. That grieves the Holy Spirit, which dwells within me and is constantly reminding me of that word and refreshing me in that word through God's gracious means. That's the whole reason we have these long talks about prophets and Old Testament and obedience, active and passive. It's all to show you and remind you of what you know, God willing you know, that God has called you to something better and he will bring you to it. That's great. And as you're, as you're talking, this, I, I mean, I think it, it's a great way to end. When, when I hear you talking that way, it makes me think of conformity to the image of Christ. And there it is. I think Absolutely. that if we can, this will be the last thing I'll say. The Old Testament prophets were being conformed to the image of Christ. And then in, in Christ, you see this perfect unity of word and action, word and deed, the word becoming flesh. And then that, that, of course, then sets the pattern for our conformity to his image as well. Very good. Zelwyn? And I'll just close maybe with a passage from Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So that part of uh, the passive obedience, like you say, is this growth. It is this becoming like Jesus. And it is so that we are no longer children tossed about by every wind and wave, but sons of God, conformed to his image and living with him in purity and righteousness forever. Amen. This has been a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zell, and Heidi. David, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless.